Good morning again. Our scripture reading for this morning is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. That'll be our sermon text. If you uh, don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the back on the table just outside the door. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to grab a Bible from there and keep it. Write your name in the front, uh, take it home with you, bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. I'm going to be reading, uh, just so you know, Hebrews 4, but I'm also going to, 416, but I'm also going to read verses 14 and 15 as well to give us at least a slice of the context, a very small slice. But before uh, we read God's Word, let's pray together. Father, we need you right now. As we've just sung, we need you every hour, and that includes this one. And we pray, Father, that you would come and be with us now, that you would draw near by your Spirit, that you would open our hearts and minds, that you would draw us close to you, that you would remind us of your love in Jesus, that you would remind us of your acceptance of us through the gospel, and that you would transform us by that, that we might live in the world in the light of the knowledge of your love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 4, I'll read verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I want you to think about the people that you enjoy being with. Why do you enjoy being with them? What do you do when uh, you get together? What makes their presence pleasant to you? My guess is when you get together uh, with people who you really enjoy, who really bring you joy, among whatever common interests you might have, uh, you spend time doing some very normal things, like eating together, talking together, getting to know one another better. Hopefully the people that you really love, I mean, you're interested in them, you want to know them, and so you eat and you talk and you you know one another, right? You notice one another. That's the way most relationships work, right? I mean, you spend time together doing very mundane things, getting to know one another better. Sometimes we do things together, like we go bowling or we watch a movie, But it's really the routine, more than anything, that builds a relationship. This morning we're going to talk about what it looks like to be with God. What it looks like to spend time with Him. To build that relationship. We're going to look at Hebrews 4.16, just that one single verse. And you'll notice that the verse, verse 16, is an imperative. It's an exhortation. It's an encouragement. begins with the words, let us. Fundamentally, the encouragement is to draw near. Let us draw near, the writer of Hebrews is saying. And so our outline this morning is in terms of that 
exhortation. It, it, it goes like this. You can see it on the back of your bulletin if you're interested. Uh, our outline is draw near to the throne of grace, draw near with confidence, draw near to receive mercy and grace, draw near. Draw near to the throne of grace, draw near with confidence, draw near to receive mercy and grace, draw near. Well, the moment we talk about spending time with God, that, that may trigger something in your mind. Maybe it triggers a memory of being in a particular church building at a particular time in your life. Uh, maybe it triggers confusion. What, what does that even mean, spending time with God? Maybe the phrase makes you think, I'm, a, I'm a, some kind of a mystic, right? Uh, talking about going off and into the desert so that I can you know, enjoy God's presence somewhere. Or maybe if you're kind of a, the naturalistic bent, you think of what sort of psychological or sociological explanation there might be for what religious people talk about as spending time with God. Well, if you'll bear with me uh, this morning, I hope at least to explain what we mean, what Christians mean when we talk about spending time with or drawing near to God. You know, it's clear from Scripture that uh, the God of the Bible has a desire to be near his people, even a commitment to dwell with them. So you may remember God created the world in the beginning, we read in, in Genesis 1 and 2, that he might dwell in our midst. And yet because of human sin, uh, Adam and Eve were removed from God's presence. Humanity was removed from God's presence in the garden. And yet God didn't abandon humanity, but he began to prepare a way to dwell with us once more. You see that clearly in his work with Israel later on in the Bible, where God brings the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, a slavery which was both the effect of and also uh, symbolic of our condition in sin. And God has Israel, he brings them out of Egypt, he, he brings them into the desert, and he has them build a tabernacle or a temple as a dwelling place for God, where God might dwell in the midst of his people. He had them make special rooms in that tabernacle. Tabernacle. In one of those rooms was a, a, a box called the Ark of the Covenant. It was covered in gold. And on top of that box was a seat called the Mercy Seat, which was symbolic of the throne of God. It was the place where God said he would meet with his people. By the way, also on the back of your bulletin at the bottom, there's a diagram of the tabernacle. We'll refer to that a couple of times. I'll refer to things in the tabernacle, and I thought it might be helpful if you're not familiar with it to have at least a, a little bit of a, a picture of it as we talk through some of those things. Well, Israel, the Israelites, they are out of Egypt. They've built this tabernacle where God can dwell in the midst, in their midst. Eventually, they go into the promised land. They build a permanent structure called the temple where God is to dwell in their midst. But Israel, like Adam, failed to keep God's house rules. And though God uh, had given them the ceremonial law to, to remove their uncleanness and remove their impurity, their sin was too great even for those sacrifices to deal with. And once again, they're exiled from God's presence and the temple is destroyed. And that brings us to the New Testament, right? Where, where Jesus comes into the world as Emmanuel, God with us. 
God comes clothed in human flesh, and suddenly sinful people are drawing near to him, drawing near to Jesus to touch him all the time. You read in the scriptures, people want to draw near to Jesus. They want to touch him. Instead of them dying because of their impurity or being cast out of his presence, they are made clean. Then Jesus goes to the cross to bear sin and impurity. He rises from the dead in newness of life. He enters into the Father's presence in heaven, and he presents himself as a sacrifice for sin once for all, to cleanse us, to cleanse his people. And he sits down at the right hand of the Father. And then the writer of Hebrews says in verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, God wants to dwell with his people. He wants to be near his people. And the writer of Hebrews encourages us, draw near, draw near. Well, where are we to draw near, right? To what location, according to this verse? What does that mean? Draw near to what? Well, the verse tells us, draw near to the throne of grace. Now, the phrase throne of grace is an echo of the Old Testament phrase, the mercy seat. Again, uh, as we said, in the tabernacle, in what was called the most holy place, there was a box called the Ark of the Covenant, And on that ark was a lid of sorts called the mercy seat. There were two golden cherubim, two golden angels on that mercy seat. And God was said to meet with Israel above the cherubim, above the mercy seat, enthroned above the cherubim. The high priest in Israel would go into that most holy place just once a year to offer blood to purify the place from Israel's sin so that God might continue to dwell in their midst. And yet the priests would go into the holy place, that outer room, that first room, daily to light the lamps, to offer incense on the altar before the veil in front of the mercy seat. And the writer of Hebrews encourages us, draw near to God's throne of grace, just as the priests drew near to the mercy seat. And we know that that is what Hebrews 4 means, draw near, sort of just like the priests drew near, Uh, Because of Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 talks about something similar. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near. So the Hebrews tells us to enter the holy places, to draw near to God. The difference, of course, is that the mercy seat in the most holy place in the Old Testament was just a shadow of the throne of grace in heaven. Hebrews 8.1 talks about Jesus entering the holy places, and it says it like this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So the tabernacle and the holy places and the mercy seat are a picture for us of God's throne of grace in heaven, the true tabernacle of God. Now, even though Hebrew uh, uses this phrase, throne of grace, draw near to the throne of grace, there's, of course, a person on that throne. Actually, there are two people on that throne. Uh, God the Father is on the throne of grace, according to the Bible, but Jesus the Son is also on that throne, our great high priest. So Revelation chapter 3, verse 21 says that Jesus sat down with his Father on his throne. So Jesus is there on the throne of grace with his Father, and the writer says, draw near to that throne of grace. 
We're to draw near, draw near to the throne of grace where the Father and the Son are seated and reigning in heaven. Now, I don't know the last time you drew near to a throne, but it would seem to me that it wouldn't be a particularly lighthearted moment. I mean, many of us have trouble drawing near a teacher to talk about a grade. How much more drawing near a throne? The closest thing to a throne in our culture is probably a judge's bench. The judge sits on his chair and decides right from wrong and renders his verdict. And if you've ever been brought before a judge's seat, you probably came with some trepidation. The pictures of God's throne in the Bible, of course, would encourage that same kind of trepidation. They're terrible. I mean, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees the Lord upon his throne, and there are angels, and there are smoke, and there are earthquakes, and Isaiah cries out, Woe is me, for I am lost. Daniel chapter 7, God's throne is described as being uh, fiery flames. Its wheels are burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and the court sat in judgment. Revelation 4 says that from God's throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Revelation 20 pictures the throne of God and the earth and the sky flee from before the throne in terror. See, every time someone comes before this throne, they are struck with fear at the horrible sight. Smoke and earthquakes and fire and lightning and thunder and judgment. The writer of Hebrews says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. From where does such confidence come? Whence such boldness? You know, most of us, uh, the lawyers among us excluded, spend as much time as possible avoiding coming before earthly judges. What might convince even one of us even to dare to step a foot into the holy court, much less come before the terrible throne itself? Well, let me state the obvious. Uh, the writer of Hebrews calls this throne the throne of grace, the throne of God's favor. He doesn't call it the throne of judgment, though it is. He doesn't call it the throne of God's wrath. He doesn't call it the throne of God's judicial dealings. No, he calls it God's throne of grace. Now, if you're thinking clearly, you might think, I don't care what he calls it. If it's made of fire and causes the earth itself to tremble and God is there to judge, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Names aside. Of course, here's the problem. Scripture tells us, that all must appear before the judgment seat at some point. Everyone must come and receive what is due for what they have done in the body, the Bible tells us. So maybe I can put it this way, right? We have our options. We can pursue the throne of grace now, however scary that might be, or we can face the throne of judgment without mercy later. Now, okay, right, you might be thinking, you're getting a bit heavy here. Okay, let's just say that I am supposed to draw near this throne with confidence. I hear about this throne, this throne of fire and lightning and earthquakes, and I'm supposed to draw near with confidence. Where can such confidence come from? Especially when I know God's throne of grace is also his throne of judgment. How can I be confident to stand before God? Well, look back at our verse, verse 16. Verse 16 begins with the words, let us then. 
Uh, the little word then tells us something. It tells us that something that was just said is impacting something being said right now. Uh, we normally use it in if-then statements, right? If it is really 12 degrees outside, then I ought to have my boys wear gloves to school. So their teachers tell me. The word then in verse 16 directs us back, right? What does it direct us to? It directs us to verses 14 and 15. Verse 14 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. See, verse 14 tells us that we have a, a priest, a great high priest. Okay, what's a priest? Well, a priest is, is a go-between, right? And a mediator, an intermediary. Old Testament priests functioned similar, similarly to uh, legal mediators today, right? They, they sought to bring reconciliation between two parties. Their job was to make peace by the blood of a sacrifice. And the Bible says we have a priest, a great high priest, who makes peace between us and the Father, Hebrews 9 puts it like this. It says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus entered heaven to present his blood, his sacrifice to the Father, that we might be freed from sin, its guilt, its power, and its punishment. We have a high priest who didn't just take the blood of an animal and sprinkle it on a golden box, but who took his own blood and presented it directly to the Father in heaven when he ascended to the Father's right hand. Jesus, our sacrifice, is at the right hand of the Father right now. And what this means is we can come before God's throne of judgment and acknowledge, yes, Father, I am guilty of every charge that you might lay against me. Every failure is mine, right? Every ounce of lust, every bit of greed. But the sacrifice for my sin is right there. His blood has taken away my sin. His blood has dealt with my punishment. Hebrews 7.25 says, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus lives because of the resurrection, and he is seated at the Father's right hand to make intercession for us. He's pleading with the Father on our behalf. The presence of Jesus then turns that throne of judgment into the throne of grace for his people. Hebrews 4, though, goes on into in, verse 15, and it says that this Jesus, our high priest, who is at the right hand of the Father, is not unable to sympathize with our weakness, but in every respect he was tempted, as we are, yet without sin. See, we might be tempted to think, in light of Jesus' uh, death and resurrection and ascension and sitting at the Father's right hand, we might be tempted to think, okay, that's great, uh, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, he's borne my sin, uh, so God's not going to smite me like a bug in his presence. He's not going to declare me guilty. The two of them are up there, and they kind of have to tolerate me because Jesus' death on the cross, right? Jesus died for my sins, so they have to forgive me. They have to put up with my stuff now because of the blood of Jesus. 
But that's not what Hebrews is saying at all, right? Jesus is at the Father's right hand, sympathizing with us in our weaknesses. And we hear the word sympathy sometimes, and there's kind of a note of condescension in it. You know, we sympathize with people, oh, poor them, right? They're in that situation. But there's really no need for that, that note of condescension. That's not intended here. What it's saying is Jesus understands. He knows our weakness. Jesus was fully God and fully man. He knows what it means to be a human being. He knows what it means to be tired and hungry and sick and oppressed and rejected and betrayed and physically abused. He knows what it's like to face death. He has been tempted in every conceivable way as you have, yet without sin. Now you might think, well, okay, Jesus hasn't been tempted quite the way I've been tempted. And in a sense, that's probably true, right? Jesus was never tempted to steal a car or something like that because there were no cars. The details of Jesus' temptations were different than ours, but Jesus underwent every kind of temptation and he underwent them to the nth degree. We say Jesus has never been tempted like me, but actually, if anything, the opposite is true. You have never been tempted like Jesus. You may know the illustration, right? You, you have a, a bridge made out of sticks and you try to walk across it. A man goes and he puts one foot on the bridge and then two feet on the bridge and it collapses under his weight. But you have a steel bridge and a tank drives across it. Which bridge bore more weight? The one that gave in quickly or the one that didn't give in at all? You see, because Jesus did not give in to sin, he knows more fully the weight of temptation. He has been tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. He knows our weakness. He sympathizes with us in our struggles. And so we can come before God's throne of grace with confidence, not just because Jesus is there as our great high priest, though that's one thing, not just because he has presented his blood as an atonement, though that's another, not just because he intercedes with the Father on our behalf, though that's true, but also because Jesus is sympathetic to our plight. And he is ready to receive us with sympathy and grace. We can draw near without fear of judgment. We can draw near with the expectation of, of sympathy in our troubles. So the writer of Hebrews encourages us to draw near to God, to draw near to his throne of grace with confidence, without fear of judgment, with a full expectation of sympathy. Why? Why draw near? Again, verse 16. Verse 16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We draw near to find mercy and grace. Where are you struggling in life right now? Maybe you're struggling to get through your first year of undergrad. You're happy the first semester is over. Uh, maybe you're struggling in a particular relationship or with a particular decision. Maybe you're wrestling with guilt or with shame or, or just with the fact that life doesn't seem fair. Maybe you're wondering when these difficulties are going to end when you're going to get a break from the seemingly relentless troubles of life. Maybe you feel lonely, or worse, rejected, or unloved. Maybe life just feels overwhelming in general, and you can't really put your finger on anything in particular. Where do you turn for help? 
you know, sometimes we simply despair, right? In the midst of our inability, in the midst of our impotence to handle life, we just despair. We, we, we become hopeless. I can't figure out what to do with all this mess. Sometimes we turn to our friends or a spouse or a parent to make it all better. Further straining yet another relationship, expecting them to be for us what only God can be. Sometimes we deceive ourselves into thinking uh, that, that we can really make it on our own. We only to, only to have things come crashing down around us or weeping on the inside in the meantime as we try to bear up under the weight of our troubles. Here's the writer of Hebrews' encouragement. Whatever you, you struggle with, wherever you ache, draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Mercy and grace, he says. Mercy is that attitude, right, that looks on those in trouble and seeks to help them. Mercy is active compassion. The writer says if we come to God's throne of grace, we will find mercy. God will look on our trouble and be moved to help. Right? Mercy is not a, a passive, sentimental tear. No, it, it's God's active help in the midst of our struggles. If we come to him, we will receive mercy, the writer says. And grace, grace is God's favor, his undeserved love, that we have sinned, that we have rebelled, that we have rejected God's wise counsel for life. If we come to God's throne of grace where Jesus sits, we will find favor and love and forgiveness and acceptance. If we come to God's throne of grace, we will find mercy and grace. We will find what we need to help us in our time of need. What this means is that God is ready to help us when we need it, right, in our time of need. God's help is a timely help, the writer is trying to say. Now, the problem with many of us is that God's idea of timely help and our idea of timely help are so different. And we want God to help us in our way, on our timetable. But God wants to show us his mercy and grace and give us the help we need when we truly need it. You know, oftentimes his showing us his mercy and grace means not making everything okay when we want him to make everything okay. And I have to remind you even what, what this might look like. Think about Jesus. Jesus cries out to God, and Hebrews tells us he was heard because of his righteousness. But he was also betrayed and falsely accused and falsely condemned and mocked and beaten and crucified and mocked some more and eventually died and was buried. And you might think, well, God didn't help him in his time of need. And he was Jesus. But he was heard, Hebrews tells us. And he was raised from the dead on the third day. And he was brought up to heaven. And he was seated at the right hand of the Father. And he was given authority over heaven and earth. See, God's help often is well after we think we need it. But his timing is perfect. You know, one of the problems, uh, this, this is one of the problems with some Christians who might think that if you have just enough faith, right, if you have enough faith, then you shouldn't experience any trouble, any sickness in your life. Where's the place for the cross in that kind of thinking? The resurrection only comes after suffering, after difficulty. And Jesus says, right now, we are to take up our cross and follow him and hope in the resurrection to come. Where is the trust in God's timing in that kind of teaching? God's timing is perfect. And so we pray and we wait and we endure 
and we trust. Our safety and security are in God's hands. Our hope is in the resurrection to come. We may not be able to understand his timing, but we can trust it. He loves us. The cross demonstrated his love. Jesus loved us to death, literally. Whatever happens in our lives, whatever troubles we experience, if we draw near to his throne of grace, we will find the mercy and grace we need when we need it. There's a story of a woman who watched someone in her church die with real grace and real faith. And she was so impressed with the way this person faced death, she went to her pastor and said, Pastor, I just don't think that I have that kind of dying faith. And her pastor wisely said, that's because you're not dying. You see, I don't know what you're going through, and I'm probably going through very different things. But I do know that if we come before God's throne of grace, he will give us the mercy and the grace and the help that we need when we need it. Draw near to the throne of grace. Draw near with confidence. Draw near to receive mercy and grace and help when you need it. Finally, draw near. If you're like me, you're extremely frustrated at this point. And maybe you're not as critical as I am. I hope you're not as critical as I am. But uh, if I were there listening to this, I'd be ready to jump out of my seat. Because none of what I've said makes any sense because I haven't defined one important phrase. What does draw near mean? Draw near to the throne of grace, we've said. Draw near with confidence. Draw near to receive mercy and grace. What does draw near mean? What does any of this have to do with our liturgy? You may remember when a series on our worship service talking about uh, aspects of our worship service. What, what does all this mean? How does all this fit together? What does draw near mean? Well, think again about the tabernacle. Once a year, the high priest went into the most holy place to approach the mercy seat. And just as Jesus, once for all, has gone into heaven to approach the Father's throne of grace. But the priests daily entered into the holy place. And Christ has made us priests, the Bible teaches us, to daily enter into fellowship with our Father. And as the priests went into that holy place, there were three things in there, and those three items each teach us something about our approach to God's throne of grace. As the priests entered into, they had maybe performed their sacrifices at the bronze altar, they had been washed at the bronze uh, uh, basin, and then they enter through that first curtain. And in that room, there are three things. The first is the lampstand. The priests come into the holy place, and they're confronted with light. The lampstand there represented the light of God's presence, particularly the presence of the Spirit. Even though God was enthroned uh, above the cherubim, the Bible tells us, though his presence was particularly manifested in the most holy place, nevertheless, God's light shines in the holy place. And the priests saw that. They walked in and they see this light representing God's presence. Part of their fellowship was to see this light, to see, as it were, God's presence in their midst. Well, where do we see that? Where do we see God's light now? Where does God's light shine for us to see, so to speak? Well, Paul tells us in the New Testament, doesn't he? 
He says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God's light shines for us in the face of Jesus. Okay, well, where do we see Jesus? That's maybe not helpful because Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. I'm not gazing into his eyes at the moment. Where do we see him? Well, we see him presently in the scriptures. Right? The Spirit uses God's word to open our eyes to see the glory of Jesus. And so when the priests come into the holy place, they come into God's presence. And similarly, when we come to God's word with a heart ready to see Jesus, ready to gaze upon his beauty, we are really and truly drawing near to God to bask in his light. The other, one of the other items in that room is the table of showbread. You know, once a week, the priests were invited to the Father's table to eat the bread of presence. The priests ate it once a week because it was once a week that they put out fresh bread and they removed the bread that had been there the week before. We, too, commune with our Father when we come to his table. The Lord's Supper shows us our acceptance with the Father. As his pardoned and purified people, we are welcomed into his presence at his table. When we gather together for the Lord's Supper, we are drawing near to our Father in a very real way. Finally, there's the altar of incense in that room. There's this altar that, that represents the prayers of God's people. And when the priests would daily offer up incense, though the veil stood between them, they were standing in front of the ark, in front of the mercy seat. And the smoke from the incense would fill not only the holy place, but it, all, it would also go through the veil into the most holy place. In fact, the altar of incense was so associated with the most holy place that the writer of Hebrews says that the most holy place has the golden altar of incense. Even though it wasn't in that room, the writer of Hebrews associates it with that room. See, to come to the altar of incense was for the priests their daily approach to the mercy seat. Though they stood on the outside, their incense went before the veil, went beyond the veil. As the priests daily approach the mercy seat by offering up of incense, so our prayers ascend to the Father's throne. See, when we pray, though our feet are firmly planted on earth, our prayers go beyond the veil and enter into heaven as a pleasing smell to our Father. That prayer is, the, the, the fact that prayer is a primary way of drawing near our Father is actually implied in our text in the word confidence. Verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 4 uses the word confidence. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. It's interesting that that word may mean simply confidence or boldness, but it also may mean confidence of speech. It was an important word in Greek politics. It meant freedom of speech or the right to speak. And so it implied the ability to have candor and frankness in your conversation. The writer of Hebrews is saying, he's encouraging us to come near to God with candor, with openness in our conversation with him. Draw near to God. Gaze upon his glory in the face of Jesus in the scriptures. Sit with him at his table in the Lord's Supper. Pour out your heart to him. Cultivate this moment-by-moment conversation with God as you express the cares of your hearts to him freely and without fear. Know that he's ready to sympathize with you in your struggles. Of course, as we talk about the, the items in the tabernacle, we can't forget about the mercy seat itself. God said that from above the cherubim, he would meet with Israel, and from there he would speak with them. Where does God speak to us today? 
Again, it's through the scriptures, isn't it? We hear from God in the scriptures as we read and as we hear and as they are preached. We draw near to God to hear from him. You know, we've been talking about the tabernacle, but last week we talked about Mount Sinai as well. And all those preparations that we talked about last week, what were they preparing for? They were preparing to hear from God, to have God speak with them from the mountain. So to draw near to him, to draw near to God is to draw near to to listen, to draw near to hear his word. Now that said, I I don't want you to think that sort of the climax of communion with God is, is like some kind of a lecture hall that you shuffle in, you find your seat, and you wait for God to walk out and give you a lecture on his attributes while you diligently take notes. That would be great if God gave us a lecture on his attributes, but when we talk about drawing near to here, that's not what we mean. Tweak the image just a little bit. Think about it this way. Think about a family gathering. You know, everybody's there, mom and dad, brothers and sisters, grandma and grandpa, aunts and uncles and cousins and nieces and nephews and everybody else, right? Everybody's together, maybe for the first time in a few months, and uh, you, you comment on how big little Joey has gotten and how little Mary has grown up so fast, and you all pile onto couches in the living room before dinner, and people are everywhere, they're on their floor, and they're, they're on laps, and there's a fire going in the fireplace, and, and what do you do? You start to talk, Right? Granddad uh, recites stories from when he was in the war and, or when he first met your grandma and, and grandma corrects the details as he goes. And, you know, maybe you've never been in a family gathering like that. Uh, maybe this is kind of an overly sentimental picture. Uh, maybe it's a stretch for you even to want to get together with your family in the first place. But here's my point. Listening doesn't have to conjure up images of a lecture hall. It can also conjure up images of a family of a holiday, of a celebration, of being together. We draw near to God to sit at his feet, to listen to his stories, to eat at his table, to share with him the secrets of our hearts. That's what it means to draw near. Coming before God's fiery throne looks like opening the Bible to hear from him and opening our mouths to cry out in need and gathering with his people to hear and to pray and to weep and to eat. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the awesome truth that as we bow our heads and close our eyes and lift our voices up to you, you are listening from your throne. That our Lord Jesus is there listening as well, interceding on our behalf praying for us and with us as we pray to you, Father. Father, help us to long to draw near to you, to long for your presence. Help us to draw near every day, even as we hope for that final day when we will draw near to you for one last time and we will be with you forever and we will see you face to face. Thank you for that hope of drawing near then, even as we draw near now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.